Thank you. Ugh, look at them. You'd think this was the only fun they had in their lives. It probably is. I mean, what do you see when you look down at their cubicles from our offices? Dull gray people working dull gray jobs. Man, remember when it was just us? Back in the days when we were a startup. The synergy we had. Dude, I know. Tossing Nerf footballs around the office, drawing up plans on whiteboards. Dreaming, man. Dreaming of changing the world. And we did. We did change the world. There's not a household in this country that doesn't own at least one of our products. It was hard to believe we could ever fail. Impossible, even. Guys, we haven't failed. You know that. We're simply selectively climbing back into the womb, and this time we'll be careful who we bring with us out of the birth canal for the best synergy. I'm nowhere near drunk enough for that metaphor. But sure, I get where you're coming from. He's right. It's their fault. Them, out there. Is it any wonder that being surrounded by these pasty dullards we lost the magic? It's no surprise. The bigger we grew, the less dynamic our hires were. Exactly. It's nothing like back in the day, when every single person who walked through that door was a powerhouse of synergy. Honestly, you guys are being way too maudlin. Look, Stacy from R&D is so drunk she's about to get her boobs out. Bet you a thousand dollars she's just adjusting the buttons on her blouse. You're on. I've seen how much he's been knocking back. Top's coming off and she'll be on a table and- <laughs> Blouse adjusted. Seat taken. Thousand bucks, please. Fine, here you go. And now Bob from Accounts is puking in a pot plant. It's no wonder we need a reboot. Back to basics. The famous five. Legends in the field. It's gonna be six this time, though. We can't use that nickname anymore. How about the Sex God Six? Oh, man. We're not going back to a time where you forget that two-fifths of the company are women, are we? A third now. Even there will be more outnumbered than we were before. How about the Sinister Six? What about the Synergy Six? We just need top-level synergism, my dudes. I'm just glad we were able to find someone desperate enough to do the dirty. A lick spittle. A sniveling weasel. That's what we were missing last time. Well, no. We had Chuck. Hey, you didn't feel that way about me back then. We were married back then. But three affairs and an expensive coke habit changes one's opinion of a person. But enough of your past indiscretions, Val. Screw you. You're lucky we can't call you a cuck. Logan's right, though. If we're doing this again, we need the sixth. Someone who'll take a kicking if things go wrong. A fall guy. The five of us appearing on the cover of Time magazine. And the sixth member of the company stumbling behind us. The one we can blame if we fuck up again. Or if Silicon Valley doesn't welcome us back with open arms, then we pin all the fuck-ups on him and get the sympathy vote. And trust me, he is a fuck-up. I'm good at recognizing him. I used to be married to one. Harsh. Honey, I've been married to three. And you're right. He is a total sycophantic fuck-up. 
Hey, guys. Which unlucky employee are we talking about, then? Uh, hey, Malcolm. Mr. Synergetic Six himself. Malcolm in the middle. Middle manager Malcolm. Soon to be head of development, though, right? Honestly, can't wait to join you guys at the top. Well, there won't be any top, will there? A team. No hierarchy. Maximum synergy. We'll be top and bottom. And you'd know all about being top and bottom, Logan, dear. Christ, do you ever switch off the snark, Nadine? <laughs> the best part is I know you well enough to know that absolutely wasn't deliberate. <laughs> Christ, I'm really not drunk enough for this. But Malcolm, you're in, right? You're ready to do what needs to be done tonight? Anything for you guys. <laughs> oh, by the way, nice Santa suit. Couldn't you have shelled out for a better one? Uh, well, I, I wasn't sure if I could claim it back on expenses, and... It doesn't matter. Are you ready to be the gift giver? I've spotted a few members of the tech press and they're pretending to be employees. I think we're safe to kick it all off. This is really gonna make waves. And remember how I told you to play your role tonight. Super Synergy Secret Santa. Yep, I remember. But, okay, you guys trust me, right? I mean, you must do if you're taking me with you into the new company, but, um... What's the matter, Malcolm? Second thoughts? No, 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 no. It's just, I had an idea. A slight change to the plan. Instead of giving all the employees their gifts first, I think you five should be given your secret Santa presents. Really emphasize how you're the future, the ones who matter. That's the smartest thing I've heard all night. Okay, so we'll gather everyone Just follow my lead. Like you said, you trust me. Ahem. Excuse me? If I could have a bit of quiet, please? Will everyone shut the fuck up and listen? Thank you. As you can see from my outfit, I am Santa, the one who brings gifts, and I have gifts for all of you tonight. Shut the fuck up, I said. <clears throat> I have gifts for you all, but you'll have to wait. These five people standing beside me now, they're the ones who made this company what it is today. They're the ones who dragged you all up from the gutter. What's he doing? This is a bit extreme, isn't it? It was supposed to make us look ruthless, not insane. I don't know. But Malcolm's starting to grow on me. A lot. Anyway, it seems only fair that you pathetic cattle, you peons, you serfs, wait your turn while our upper management receive their rewards first. Anyone got a fucking problem with that? Thought not. Good. So, it's time for the first gift. Allow me to present this to you, Chuck Wendell, Head of Marketing. Uh, thanks, Malk. Well, go on, don't be shy. Open it. Uh, a bent-up menorah? But I'm not even Jewish. I've, I've, I feel funny, like... The object you hold has a story attached. What you're feeling is the desire to tell that story. Oh, don't fight it. Oblige. Let the words come. Well, 
Okay. I, Yosef, lit the candle. Yosef lit the fifth candle on the menorah with great care as his wife Rosa peeked through the living room curtain at the figure standing outside in the snow. He moved on to the sixth candle. Don't worry. If all goes according to plan tonight, we won't have to worry about it anymore. And then he continued whispering his blessings intimately beneath his breath. Baruch Adonai, Eloheinu melech olam. It was an abomination, Rosa thought. The figure paced back and forth like a jailer, watching them with hollow eyes on its smooth face, devoid of mouth and nose. How did it breathe, she wondered, or did it not need to breathe at all? The house was infused with the scent of freshly fried potato pancakes, latkes, but even the nostalgic odor of a lifetime of pleasant Hanukkahs couldn't chip away at the block of tension in her chest. She wrung her hands and stared until Yosef closed the curtains and took her gently in his arms. Come, let's light the last candle together. She nodded and circled to the front of the large wooden living room table on which the menorah stood, all the while feeling the oppressive presence as though it were standing beside her. The curtains might as well have been invisible, for she could still see the hulking mass of clay in her mind's eye. For eight nights it had stood outside, following them wherever they went within the confines of the house. She imagined its thick, undefined fingers clamping down into a fist and crushing through the wall. When it ran, it made the ground shake and her heart miss a beat. It usually lumbered slowly, though with footfalls far softer than one would give it credit for. Sometimes she forgot it was there, but then she would catch a glimpse of it in the window. Elohim, the Lord's name, was etched carefully into its forehead and felt more like an insult than an honor to the one above. Before she knew it, the final candle was lit, and Yosef placed the shamash, the ninth candle used to light the others, in its central pedestal on the menorah. Rosa joined her husband in a blessing, and then retreated to the kitchen for the latkes. There, she lingered with the tray in her hand, trying her best to regain her composure. Yosef sat in his armchair and cupped a hand to his chin pensively. He closed his eyes and cast away all thoughts to fall into a meditative trance. I wish someone would save us. He recited these words over and over in his head, like an incantation. This lasted for several minutes, until he was pulled out of his trance, not by an answer to his prayer, but by a shrill shriek and the sound of a silver platter hitting the kitchen floor. The clay creation was braced up against the patio door, staring Rosa down with its shadowy sockets. The floor was slick with oil, and their latkes had slipped off in all directions. The creature's hands dragged along the glass door, scratching the surface and producing a sound like nails on a chalkboard. It couldn't speak, of that they were certain, but there seemed to be a purpose behind its actions, as though it were trying to say something, to send a message, a message Rosa could only interpret as a threat. The fear in Yosef's eyes seemed disingenuous as he whispered the Lord's name and wished once again to be saved. Rosa's fear, on the other hand, was as true as could be. It was palpable, 
and it filled every inch of her body and froze her in place like a statue. Why had the creature wandered closer to their home? What was keeping it from breaking in? I wish this would stop. And for a moment, everything did. The flickering light and shadows cast by the nine candles in the living room became still. The golem's hands froze in place, and the loud sound of Yosef's mouth-breathing ceased. Chills ran down Rosa's spine, and then, as though the world had been sitting at the very top of a roller coaster, there was a sudden dip, and everything started moving way too fast. The nine little flames on the menorah bowed low, but did not blow out. And suddenly, standing in the doorway between the living room and the kitchen, was a man. He was dressed in a thick black coat and trilby, with polished shoes and a sheepish grin on his face. He was tall, the top of his hat stopping just short of the doorframe. I wish this would stop. He oozed confidence as he repeated Rosa's words. His eyes narrowed into crescent moons. My dear Rosa, I do believe I can help you with that. My name is Will Grant, and for a small, reasonable fee... Finally! Yosef pushed past Rosa, and a rush of cold air billowed into the room as he opened the sliding door. The golem dipped its head and stepped inside. This was the closest either of them had been to the monster since its creation, and a record amount of fear caused by it, as far as Rosa was concerned. Yosef pointed towards the stranger with harsh determination. Grab him. The ground shook as the golem charged straight at the would-be wish-granter. Its every movement was accompanied by the earthy, cosmic noise of tectonic plates scraping against one another. He scooped Will Grant up in a bear hug, holding him with a grip that could crush a mortal's ribs. Will struggled against the hold, but he wasn't built for raw physical strength. His expertise lied elsewhere. But what is the meaning of this? Yosef walked confidently, one might even say cockily, to his captive, crossing his arms high on his chest as he examined him. For the rest of his life, he'd never forget how the sweet, salesman-esque smile on Will's face had been stripped off in an instant. Demon, you look exactly like he said you would. You haven't aged a day. I suppose you wouldn't, would you? I beg your pardon? Do I know you? Rosa crouched and collected the latkes, keeping the three in her peripheral vision. Her hands were shaking, and she found herself dropping the potato pancakes a few times. In all the years they'd been trying, she never believed it would actually work. She humored Yosef in the same way a parent plays make-believe with their child. She should have known it would be different this time when Yosef managed to bring that human-shaped mound of dirt to life by writing the Lord's name on its forehead. Yosef told his story, one which his wife had heard a hundred times already. This time, it sounded more rehearsed than remembered. When my grandfather was just a boy, the kids in class were cruel to him, especially around Christmas. It's so easy to pick on those who are different. They teased him for wearing a kippah, for his odd name, for drawing a menorah instead of a Christmas tree to put on the class's activity board. They called him stingy. They called him parrot nose. Ironic, seeing as they were the ones parroting others. 
The words they used were not their own. They were learned, and they were repeated, and they were cruel for no reason. Yes, well, boys will be boys. I don't see why this has anything to do with me. Silence, demon! Yosef motioned to the golem, who squeezed Will tighter. It knocked the wind out of him, and for a split second, Yosef thought he recognized a hint of fear in the demon's eyes. He cleared his throat and continued his monologue, all the while slowly leading them into the living room. At night, they'd throw eggs at his house, clouding the windows where the menorah shone. They littered the yard, and they spray-painted phalluses. He paused, because Will's eyes narrowed in amusement at this. And was that a snicker? The golem's grip tightened even more, making Will groan in pain. <clears throat> Yosef walked to the menorah and looked into the flames. Rosa lagged behind, but when she reached him, she held his hand reassuringly. They spray-painted phalluses and hateful words on the garage door. They were always long gone by the time the police arrived, and those pigs refused to go after them. No harm, no foul, they said. My great-grandparents tried to shake it off and act as though nothing was wrong. But there was tension in the household, and as they lit the candles every night and spoke the blessings, my grandfather quietly wished for divine intervention, for the candles to burn brighter than the lights of any Christmas tree proud and strong, to show the world that his faith would be rewarded. Yosef's gaze sharpened and set on Will. A bead of sweat formed on Will's brow. He swallowed hard. Ah, you remember now? Will tried to shrug, but his range of movement was limited. This does sound vaguely familiar, yes. A little Jewish bloke making wishes. But, you know, all I did was grant his wish. It's what I do. Yosef slammed his palm so hard against the table, the menorah nearly tipped over. You came to him in the middle of the night. You offered the biggest, brightest menorah anyone would ever see. You said it would be a Hanukkah no one would soon forget. He traded a year of his life for your lies. Ahem, <clears throat> ahem. Well, technically, I delivered, and I charged my usual, very reasonable fee. You burned his house down, and the houses of his neighbors. The flames spread, and they lit up one by one, four homes on either side, with my grandpa's in the middle, the tallest flame, the shamash. He clenched his hands into fists and threw his arm back as though he were about to punch Will, but he stopped short and nodded to the golem. A sickening crunch was heard as the clay man squeezed the demon hard enough to crush its supernaturally strong bones. Will sputtered out blood. <coughs> this time, the look of fear wasn't fleeting. It stayed on him, staining him like mud on a white shirt. Yosef had Will right where he wanted, experiencing genuine horror and looking death in the eye. My grandfather's sisters, as well as countless neighbors, died in the inferno. You didn't just take what you bargained for. You stole so many lives. You make me sick. My grandfather spent the rest of his life trying to summon you back to make you pay. When he died, the task was passed on to my father. And then, on to me. He spat into Will's face. Rosa squeezed Yosef's hand. Do it. 
Don't antagonize him any longer. Don't give him a chance to escape. Yosef stood proudly, eyes locked on Will with fiery intensity as he commanded the golem. Crush his head so he can't hurt anyone ever again. Will's face was a perfect picture of worry and panic as the golem's thick clay fingers clamped his temples. Yosef reveled in the anguish he was causing. If he could, he would have dragged it out even longer. Alas, it was best to settle matters quickly. This had been forty years coming. Wait! Then again, this had been forty years coming. What was a few moments longer to watch Will squirm? He waved a hand, stopping the golem from crushing the demon's head. For now. He expected a flurry of insincere regrets, rapid-fire begging, and or a true staccato of promises being thrown his way. He did not expect Will's frown to turn into a smile, nor for manic laughter to fill the room. When it did, even though he had the upper hand, he was deeply unsettled. Dread coated his skin in a mist of sweat, and he found himself taking a step back. What's so funny? I think you made a slight miscalculation, my dear. You were clearly clever, or I don't know, devoted enough to bring to life our rock-hard friend here. But I think you failed to realize one itty-bitty detail. Rosa tensed, her back subtly arching like a cat. And what's that? Golems are nothing but slaves. He may have to listen to your every word, but that doesn't mean he doesn't have his own wants. His own, shall we say, wishes. Panic struck Yosef. He quickly barked an order. Crush him! Crush him now! The golem didn't move. And what exactly do slaves wish for? Will's eyes narrowed in amusement. Freedom. What do you say, big boy? On the house? The golem's grip loosened, allowing Will Grant to slip easily from his grasp. He winced in pain, wrapped an arm around his midsection, and then looked up at the golem. Its massive, undetailed head gave a sharp nod, and Will clapped his hands together. Excellent. I had a feeling you'd accept. Will cracked his knuckles and flared his arms dramatically in the air. Bibbidi-bobbidi-boo, now you answer only to you. A scorching hot gust of wind, like opening an oven door, swept through the room, blowing out the menorah's candles. It was suddenly very dark in the house, but for the golden glow of Will's eyes, which well and truly looked like crescent moons. They were soon joined by a malicious-looking reddish light trickling out of the fissures in the clay man's body. Truth be told, the incantation was just for, as the kids say, shits and giggles. I don't really have to say anything, but I am ever a showman. Yosef was beside himself. How had his plan backfired so completely? That, that wasn't supposed to happen. The golem's footsteps caused tremors across the living room as it approached in a slow taunt. Yosef grabbed the nearest object in reach, the menorah, to defend himself while he cowered back like an animal. He swung it back and forth frantically. Metal struck clay, but clay won. The first of three prongs bent inwards like coiling fingers. The last two jutted out, 
with the candles breaking off. Please, no, stop, I command you, please. He could only see the massive arms coming towards him from the unnatural, magmatic light radiating from within them. He could feel the golem's anger seething beneath the surface. This wasn't in the books. I do believe our friend is a little upset you created him to play bodyguard and servant. Will flicked on the lights and winked at Rosa. I think you'll want to see this. It's always easier to prepare when you know what's coming. Will spoke with such smugness, it made her sick to her stomach. Yosef continued to bash the menorah pointlessly against the stone creature. The golem was undeterred. Its fingers pinched Yosef's shoulders like clothes pegs, and the man was hoisted into the air. Yosef screamed as his shoulder blades were crushed, wet, hot tears streaming down his face. Please. The golem threw him across the room. His skull shattered open and coated the white wall with a pleasant splash of color. Rosa screeched and dove under the living room table for safety. She tried to make herself small, but she knew it was just a matter of time before she suffered the same fate as her husband. You can run and hide all you want, little mouse. Our friend knows exactly where you are. She couldn't process the grief against the fear. The golem was coming closer, and there was nowhere safe to scamper off to. The golem stood between her and the front door, and Will stood between her and the back door. Suddenly, the table was flung into the air, smashing through the window and landing in the yard. At first, she didn't see the little oil container which had been sitting on the table, landing beside her so perfectly, somehow miraculously upright, with not a drop spilled. But as death's shadow loomed over her, preparing to squash her like a bug, she suddenly became aware of everything in the room, even the most minute of details. The light tussling of the curtains, the stitching of the couch, the dripping of blood, the lettering on the golem's forehead, and the oil container. The world was moving in slow motion, giving her a chance to act. Rosa grabbed the little goblet and flung it up towards the golem as his arms plunged towards her. She closed her eyes and prayed it would work. Rosa felt a thick raindrop hit her cheek. She opened her eyes to find the clay man frozen mid-swing. Its intertwined hands were mere inches from her head and its eerie face close behind. Oil trailed down its forehead, into and out of its hollow eyes, like tears, then trickled onto her. The symbol which had given it life had become smeared and muddied, no longer spelling out the Lord's name. It was smudged, looking almost like a doctor's signature. Rosa finally exhaled tension and kicked at the ground moving away from her precarious spot under the golem for fear that the stone giant would fall on her at the lightest breeze from the broken window. Will Grant tutted, watching from the doorframe with an unamused look on his face. Well, that is unfortunate indeed. He shook his head in disapproval and scratched his chin. He couldn't kill her outright, no. That was, sadly, against his rules of engagement. Then, with a bit of misplaced levity, he made an offer. Don't suppose you'd like to wish for me to bring your husband back to life? 
Rosa did not take him up on his offer. There we go. Wasn't that nice? Now go sit in the corner with your gift, Chuckles. I'm definitely not drunk enough for this. I'm leaving. No, nobody's leaving. I don't know where this is going, but I like it. It's dynamic, exciting, it's got synergy, and I'm still the goddamn CEO. Y'all stay put. Uh, who, who's next, Malcolm, old buddy? Ah, let me see. It's just as well you didn't leave, Valerie, because, as I've heard was always the case, you're coming after Chuck. I'm not even slightly close to drunk enough for this. But I am drunk enough to rip you a new a- Here's your goddamn gift. Take it and open it. Maybe it'll spell out C-O-O, wink. It's a Ouija board adorned with Christmas lights. What the fuck? Why did this... What? Listen, every family has its Christmas traditions. Some people watch the Peanuts every Christmas. Some go caroling or build gingerbread houses. Whatever. My family might do things a little different. But deep down, and I mean way, way deep down, we're pretty much the same as anyone else. So just remember that before you judge us, okay? Okay. Our family tradition started when I was in middle school. I was really into goth stuff. I had black hair, ripped Susie and the Banshees t-shirts, painfully bad eyeliner, the whole shebang. I was also really into the occult. Thought it made me cool, you know? So that Christmas, my older sister, Sam, decided to give me a present I'd never forget. It was something of a gag gift, I guess, but one she knew I'd secretly love. That Christmas morning, I unwrapped a homemade Christmas-themed Ouija board. I'm not kidding. She had made it herself with a piece of balsa wood she'd picked up at the craft store. The letters were painted red and green. The planchette was shaped like a Christmas tree. She'd strung Christmas lights around the edge of the board. It was ridiculous. It was perfect. My parents thought it was hilarious. They weren't religious, so I guess they didn't see any harm in it. I thought it was the coolest thing I'd ever seen, and I bragged to my friends about it for weeks. We tried it out that day, all four of us in the living room. My sister plugged the lights in so the whole board was lit. We tried contacting random spirits. Abraham Lincoln, Marilyn Monroe, Bruce Lee. Of course, nobody answered. We still had fun playing. It might seem funny that we would come back to this Ouija board every year. There really wasn't a need for it, especially after I outgrew my goth phase and my sister and I became, gasp, actual somewhat responsible adults. But still, year after year, we drag it out of my closet and set it up in her living room. We laugh and we tease and we try to come up with increasingly fantastic spirits to contact. 
We never did manage to make the thing work, though. At least, not until last year. It was the Christmas after Dad died. Our mom had passed a few years before. Sam and I were officially parentless, the only two surviving members of our little family. It made Christmas bittersweet, heavy on the bitter, light on the sweet. But still, we were spending it together. And what a pain in the ass that was. We lived in different cities by then, a three-hour drive away, and the roads were so icy I nearly died half a dozen times on the way to her house. Bills had been piling up, just barely fended off by my frankly pathetic salary. So that bundle of stress was dragging me down. And I'd just gotten into a nasty fight with my sometime boyfriend. The kind of fight that makes you question every life decision that had led to such a shitty and frankly exhausting relationship. All my complaints and stresses and self-doubts fled the moment Sam opened the door and smiled at me. The same smile she'd given me when we were two kids sharing a cramped bedroom. Well, if it isn't loser Lily coming to visit her super cool, totally awesome big sister. I rolled my eyes, even as my lips twitched into a smile. Ha! As if. You went from awesome to boring when you got a mortgage and a 401k. You brat, you probably don't even know what a 401k is. Yeah, yeah. We moved into her living room. It was completely decked out for Christmas complete with a real Christmas tree and popcorn garland. Sam was really into Christmas. Had been ever since we were kids. The moment Thanksgiving ended, she was decorating, singing Christmas carols, watching creepy old Christmas cartoons. I loved that about her. Most of the time. Did you bring it? Did I bring what? I mean, I have your present and some booze. And I even brought some... You know what I'm talking about, Lily. Stop teasing. I laughed and grabbed a well-worn box from the bag at my elbow. In faded letters, it said, Merry Christmas, freak. Love, Sam. XOXO. You did! I sat it on the card table in the center of the room. It was festooned with red and green candles, set on top of a red tablecloth. I'm not about to break with tradition. I was thinking, after the Ouija board, we can sit and have pizza and hot chocolate and watch Christmas movies. Pizza and hot chocolate. Jesus. Only you would think that's appetizing. It's amazing. So, let's get this show on the road. Come on, I want to see if Santa lets Rudolph guide the sleigh again. You know... One of these years, I'm going to make you sit through the Nightmare Before Christmas in retaliation for forcing me to watch these awful Christmas specials. Don't you even joke about that. We continued arguing as I set up the Ouija board and plugged it in. A few of the lights needed replacing, but other than that, the board looked just as good as the day she gave it to me. I slapped the planchette on top of the board and plopped down in my seat. All right, get your ass over here. Let's talk to some dead guys. Who are you thinking this year? You know, we've never tried to contact Edgar A. Poe before. She sat down with a dramatic flourish. Actually, 
I have a better idea. Better than Poe? Much better. I thought this year we'd do something a little different. I propose that we summon the spirit of Christmas. I stared at her for a moment, eyebrow raised. The what? You know, the spirit of Christmas. Christmas spirit? Everyone's always talking about having too much or not enough Christmas spirit. I figure, let's talk to him and see what's what. Oh, have you been waiting all day to make that pun? Last couple of weeks, actually. But come on, it'll be fun. Fine, fine. But after that, I want to talk to Poe. Oh, hang on. She jumped up and ran over to her stereo. Back in her seat, Sam put her fingertips on the planchette. I joined her and we paused for a moment, like we always did before we began. <clears throat> oh, great spirit of Christmas, you for whom we decorate our houses with dead trees and creepy angel statues. Oh my God. We ask that you show yourself to us. Grace us with your presence, oh powerful one. Give us the gift of your words. You should have been a theater major. Oh, stop complaining, that was great. Before I could retort, a strange static sound came from the stereo. What the hell? That's weird. Sam stood up from the table. I forgot for a moment that I totally don't actually believe in all that occult stuff. Hey, don't let go of the planchette. It's dangerous. It'll just be for a minute. Let me just fix this real quick. We both jumped, turning to stare at the door. Did you invite someone else over? No, just ignore it. It's probably carolers or something. I stood up and took a few steps towards the door. Who is it? Lily. What can I say? I've never been good at following directions. I felt Sam come up behind me as I moved the deadbolt to unlock the door. This is ridiculous. Here goes nothing. I opened the door. Outside the house, it was pitch black, snowing so hard we could barely see anything in front of us. Okay, I don't like this. Close the door. Come on, let's get back inside. As we walked back into the living room, I spotted the planchette. It was resting on the letter B. Hey, isn't that in a different spot than it was before? You moved it. I grabbed my notebook and a pen from my bag and sat back down. Did not. Come on, put your hand back on the planchette. Let's see what it says. She hesitated for a moment, then agreed and sat down. We put our hands on the planchette and waited. After a moment, it jerked to the right. What the fuck? Now it's on E. We continued like that for several minutes the planchette moving under our fingers until the entire message was spelled out. Better watch out. Part of me wanted to believe that Sam was moving it, but enough of me believed something weird was going on that I no longer wanted to finish the game. Okay, spirit. This has been... enlightening. Um, thank you for speaking to us. But now we need to leave. Goodbye. We waited, breathless, wanting the planchette to move. 
It dragged our fingers over to... No. Sam took her hands off the planchette. Okay, that's it. I'm done. Let's put this away and do something else. I wanted to protest. After all, you're supposed to get the spirit to say goodbye before you end the game. Otherwise... I tried to remember back to my occult obsession days. What was supposed to happen? You'd be haunted or something? But Sam looked about as freaked out as I was, so I didn't argue. Good thinking. I unplugged the board. The Christmas lights went out, and I picked the whole mess up and shoved it back in its bag. I tried to dispel the tension from the room. So... I recall promises of pizza and hot chocolate? Sam's face lit up as she got up and led me to the kitchen. You're gonna love this new hot chocolate recipe I found. I swear to God, if you put fireball in mine again, I will literally murder you. We spent the rest of the night as planned, pigging out on junk food and watching old claymation Christmas movies. By the time midnight rolled around, we were both exhausted, dragging ourselves down the hall, she to her bedroom and me to the guest room. I barely had enough energy to brush my teeth before I fell into bed. I was out as soon as I hit the pillow. I shot up straight in bed, my heart pounding. What the fuck was that? I blinked the sleep out of my eyes and grabbed my phone to check the time. Three in the morning. I reluctantly pulled the covers back. Jesus Christ, who the fuck is up at 3 a.m.? I turned my doorknob quietly, trying not to wake Sam up if she wasn't already awake. I pulled the door open, only to jump out of my skin when I saw a dark figure standing there. Jesus, what the... God damn it, you scared the shit out of me! Sam was standing there, trembling, her face completely drained of color. Sorry. Do you... do you hear that? Yeah, I hear that. What's someone doing at the door at this hour? Should we just ignore it? That didn't sit right with me, but I also wasn't really interested in looking to see who was outside. Maybe we should look out the peephole, just to make sure nobody's, like, hurt or in trouble or something. If it looks like a creeper, we'll call the cops. Fair? She nodded, and we crept through the house until we reached the front door. Let me look. Stay back. I resisted the urge to roll my eyes at her as she went into big sister protective mode. Besides... It's not like I was real excited to get up close and personal with that door. I hung back and waited, my hands twitching at my side, ready to call for help. I don't see anyone. I jerked back and fell on my ass, scrambling away from the wall. What the hell? It's not coming from outside. It's... Is it coming from the wall? That's... Not possible. I scrambled to my feet and grabbed my sister, pulling her towards the living room. We need to call the police. And turn on the lights. And 
I don't know, do you have a gun or something? Why would I have a gun? Well, gee, I don't know, Sam. For very frightening home invasion scenarios, like the one we might be living right now? The second we stepped into the living room, we came to a stop. All the lights were off, except the lights on the Ouija board, which was sitting on the table where it had been that afternoon before I'd put it away. No. Is this some kind of joke? This is insane. It isn't happening. I'm calling 911. I pulled out my phone, but the black screen stopped me. It's dead. My sister pulled hers out of her pajama pocket. Mine too. A strange tinkling noise above our heads caused us both to look up. That turned out to be a mistake. Hundreds of Christmas ornaments fell from the ceiling, breaking into pieces against our heads and on the floor. We both screamed as we ran from the room, our arms over our heads to ward off the falling ornaments. I veered down the hallway that led to the guest room on instinct. If Sam and I could just get in there and lock the door, we could figure out what to do. We'd be okay. Everything was going to be... She and I stopped short, staring at the end of the wall. Sam, you... You don't have a fireplace? A few hours ago, that statement had been incontrovertible fact. It wasn't now. Because at the end of the hallway, between her room and mine, there was indeed a brick fireplace, complete with a roaring fire and two stockings, labeled Lily and Sam. How the fuck did that get there? Suddenly, a great thumping noise came from the fireplace, accompanied by a shower of ash falling into the fire. Sam and I started to back away. A hand shot out of the chimney, gripping the stone of the fireplace so hard it cracked. It resembled a claw more than a hand, but looked slightly more human than beast. Its skin was dark and leathery, clinging tight to the bone. A second hand joined the first. Slowly, something started to crawl out of the chimney. We stood there, watching in horrified silence as long, dirty gray hair started to emerge, followed by a sunken face with a nasty, twisted smirk and eyes that looked like burning coal. Run! Sam and I raced out of the house, listening to the thing grunt and groan as it pulled itself out of the chimney, cutting ourselves on the shattered Christmas ornaments. We ran out into the snow, leaving behind trails of blood as we stumbled towards the street. A great heat grew at our backs, and we stopped running. We turned back to see that the entire house had gone up in flames. And standing there in the doorway was a dark, near-skeletal figure watching us, even as it was consumed by the fire. The fire department told us it was an electrical fire. Turns out the wiring on the house was faulty. Or something. I'll be honest, I'm not exactly clear on the details. 
Those first few days after the fire are a blur. I was numb, empty of everything but terror. My sister felt the same, but see, she's the older sister. She's used to taking charge and being responsible, especially when she's protecting me. She shook herself out of her shock and took care of business while I sat on the bathroom floor and stared at the wall. Visions of that awful creature flashing through my brain on repeat. Whatever happened, it was covered by insurance. Thank God for small favors, right? She moved in with me for a while. She could have looked for another house, I guess. Probably wanted to. But neither of us wanted to be alone. So she quit her job and came to live and work in my city. I was glad for the company. Honestly, I'd be glad if she never left again. The both of us agreed never to speak about what happened that day. Whatever we'd done, it was over. It couldn't get us, so it took the house and all our worldly possessions. We'd escaped. So, why am I spilling my guts now? Because a few days ago, I opened my bathroom closet expecting to see clothes and a few pairs of shoes. Instead, placed deliberately in the middle of the floor was a very familiar box containing a very familiar board. It's Christmas Eve now. We've tried everything. We tried burning it, smashing it, cutting it into pieces, dumping bleach on it. It looks as new as the day she gave it to me. As night draws nearer, she and I are running out of options and running out of hope. Whatever we called out of that board, it's coming back again. So, tell me, do you think it's possible to put the spirit of Christmas to rest? Or are some traditions too strong to be killed? Very well told, Valerina. Now, go and take a seat with your ex-husband and keep the bickering to a minimum, please. We've heard quite enough from you tonight. I'm heartened to see how riveted y'all are out there on the dance floor. So many smiling faces. <laughs> almost as if... Well, almost as if you weren't entirely happy with our upper management. <laughs> like you might have had a complaint or two. And you know who you'd normally go to with a complaint, right? Hmm. HR. So why don't we call good old Nadine Foster over and we can have her shred this wrapping paper just like she shreds any complaints that might look bad on her cronies. Dude, I love this. I don't know why, but I love this. I see where this is going. Just me and you, right, Malk? Ruthless, aggressive, startup material. Come on, Nadine, don't be shy. Fine, fine. It's a wooden dove ornament, and it's blackened like it's been burnt. It used to be in a small box that gleamed green in the warm 
twinkling light. The small box gleamed green in the warm, twinkling light of the Christmas tree. Sid shook it. Inside, something thudded lightly. He looked up at Katie, his eyes wide with curiosity. What is it? Snow fell heavy outside the front window. Despite the pleasant heat growing from the fireplace, the large room was persistently cold. Katie's eyes twinkled with excitement. Open it. Grinning, Sid ripped at the wrapping. The shiny paper fell to the floor. Sid dropped the box unceremoniously and held up the small wooden bird that had been inside. It's a dove for the tree. Katie pointed towards the Christmas tree, packed dense with brightly colored baubles, strings of popcorn and cranberries, and handmade ornaments. But I thought doves were white. Why is this one black? The smile on Katie's face wavered. It was in a fire a long time ago, back when Mommy was your age. That would have been... Katie looked up at the ceiling as she calculated. Exactly 38 years ago today, Christmas Eve, 1978. The stair creaked under Katie's small foot, and the rustling that had woken her stopped suddenly. She gasped and clutched her hand to her mouth as she held her breath. She stood there in silence for several seconds. The air began to struggle inside her chest, trying to push its way out. But she didn't move. She hovered there in limbo between the main floor and upstairs. Not moving. Not breathing. And then the rustling began again. Katie exhaled, relieved. She crouched down and peered between the rails. There he was, bent down, laying presents beneath the tree. Katie pressed her face between the rails, the wood cool and hard against her cheeks. Santa stood and stretched his back. He turned and reached for the plate of cookies on the coffee table. His long, flowing white beard hung low over his swollen belly. Katie reached her leg out to the next step and slowly shifted her weight, avoiding making noise. Continuing like this, she made her way down the stairs silently, her eyes never leaving Santa. She watched him eat one, then two of the cookies she and her mother had made that day. He sipped from the glass of milk and smacked his lips with greedy pleasure. Now at the bottom of the stairs, Katie steeled herself. She clenched her jaw and leaped forward into the room. Santa spun around to look at her, his blue eyes wide with surprise. She stopped, suddenly aware of her vulnerability. Her plan, what little there had been of one, now escaped her. Regaining his composure, Santa knelt to the ground. Ho, 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 ho. Well, if it isn't Miss Katie, oh, you're up late. Katie tried to swallow, but it felt as if there was a ball stuck in her throat. Small tears formed at the corner of her eyes. Oh, Katie, little Katie, it's okay. I'm not mad. He waited for a response, but when none came, he continued. Here, I've got something special just for you. He reached into the pocket of his red pants. Merry Christmas, Katie. 
He opened his hand and offered her something small, covered in white paper. Hesitantly, Katie took it. She peeled back the paper to expose a small wooden ornament in the shape of a bird. It was white. Pure white. Whiter than snow. Whiter than a piece of paper. It shone in the near darkness of the room. A delicate red flower was painted along its side, two small green leaves extending from it. Santa peered over his glasses at her. Do you like it? He sounded hopeful, as if he were worried she'd reject his gift. Unable to speak, Katie nodded. Santa motioned toward the tree. Do you want to hang it up? She looked from Santa to the tree and then nodded again. Santa's smile was wide behind the white fluff of his beard. He placed his hand on her shoulder and led her forward. She found a very thick, heavy branch right near the bottom and placed the fine white thread of the dove around it. She let it fall from her fingertips. It caught on the branch, which swung briefly from the weight. Santa and Katie admired it for a moment before Santa turned to her. Okay, Katie, I've got to finish up. Lots of houses to visit tonight. Time to go back to bed. They stood and Santa began to lead her towards the stairs when Katie stopped. Surprised, Santa paused and looked down at her. Santa? Yes, Katie? Where? She hesitated, unsure of herself. Where's Rocky? A week before, Katie had come home from school to a quiet house. Her mom and dad were sitting in the living room, talking to each other in hushed tones. They started as the door closed with a dull thud. Her father smiled sympathetically at her. She looked to her mother and noticed that her eyes were wet. Worry formed in her stomach. Her father patted the empty couch space beside him. Katie, come here, sweetie. We've got something to tell you. Scared by the seriousness of his tone, Katie dropped her bag and joined him. I'm sorry to tell you this, Katie, but but Rocky had to go away. Katie looked up at her father, not understanding. Where did he go? Well, he... Well, he, he's, he's not here anymore, okay? Katie glanced over at her mother, who wiped a tear from her eye. But... but where did he go? Her voice grew tight and high as tears fell down her cheeks. Come here, sweetie. Her mom opened her arms wide for a hug. Katie fell forward into her embrace. Keith, would you mind making us some hot cocoa? Yeah, of course. He patted Katie on the back before leaving. Katie pulled away from her mother's chest, her face red and swollen. But mommy... Where did Rocky go? Her mother pushed the hair from her forehead before leaning closer. It's a secret. Do you promise not to tell? Katie nodded, rubbing the back of her arm against her wet face. Her mother smiled. Well, I'm not supposed to tell you, but... She looked towards the kitchen door where Katie's father had just disappeared. She smiled at Katie conspiratorially. Santa was here earlier today. Santa? 
Katie brightened, her eyes wide. Her mother nodded. He was checking our chimney to make sure it was up to code and ready for the big day. Wow! Katie had never heard anything so exciting before. Santa had been here in her house. She scrunched her face in confusion. But where's Rocky? Well, Santa and Rocky really hit it off. Santa asked if he could bring Rocky up to the North Pole with him to help get ready for Christmas Eve. But, but Rocky's my dog. I know, love. But isn't that great? He's helping Santa. But he's having lots of fun running around with the reindeer and eating treats that the elves make him. Hot anger filled Katie's stomach. It felt as if she had just drunk hot cocoa after playing outside in the snow. But this heat was dark and sour. Santa's brow furrowed. Rocky? Where's Rocky? Rocky? Oh, I'm... I'm sorry, sweetie. Santa lowered himself so he could look her in the eyes. Santa can't bring back the dead. It was as if Santa had ripped Katie's small heart from her ribcage. Pain shot through her like electricity. Her breath came in hot, short bursts. She gripped the cool metal of the scissors in her pajama pocket. She had stopped by her mother's sewing room on her way downstairs. The shiny metal of the fabric scissors had gleamed in the moonlight. They called to her, not as a warning, but as an invitation. What did... She tried to inhale, but her breathing was shallow and pained. What did you do to him? I I don't know... But his words died on his tongue as Katie dug the sharp blades deep into his thigh. Santa cried out in pain as he stepped backwards, losing his balance. Taking her opportunity, Katie pushed him. He fell back with a thud into the fireplace. The cast-iron teeth of the empty hearth bit into his lower back. He cried out again, and Katie could hear her mother calling from upstairs. Katie? Quickly, Katie reached up and pushed the large brass knob at the foot of the fireplace. A small hiss sounded from below Santa. She turned the knob. Rapid, repeating clicks joined the hissing as the starter engaged. Santa struggled to stand. Oh, Katie, no! But it was too late. Flames shot up around him. The house filled with the sounds of Santa's screams as his suit ignited. The cheap red fabric began to melt onto his red, blistering skin. It looked wet, as if Santa had been made of ice and was melting. A flame licked at the tip of his beard, and it caught suddenly, the fire eating upwards towards his face. The acidic smell of burnt chemicals filled Katie's nostrils, and she coughed. Santa pushed himself out of the fireplace, launching into the illuminated Christmas tree. He fell to the ground, and the tree fell on top of him, the flames devouring them both. Screams came from behind Katie as her mother ran down the stairs. Something hit her bare foot and Katie looked down. The dove, now singed from the fire, 
lay on the floor beside her. She reached down and picked it up, holding it to her chest. It was hot in her hand, but the warmth was lost in the heat from the fire growing in front of her. Flames began to crawl up the curtains and across the carpet, covering Katie's Christmas in a red and orange fever. Why are you giving me a burnt ornament? Sid examined it further, as if there were some secret meaning etched into its skin. Katie inhaled deeply before speaking, trying to keep her voice steady. Your grandfather, my father, gave it to me right before he died. It's very important to me, and I want you to keep it close. Every time you look at it, every year when you hang it up on your Christmas tree, I want you to remember the importance of family. I want you to remember me and your dad. It's a reminder to cherish those in your life because you never know when you won't have them anymore. Sid looked at his mother, sadness in his eyes. Do you miss your daddy? Katie smiled at him as a tear slid down her cheek. Yes, it was a long time ago, but I still think about him every day. There was a moment of silence as Sid looked at his feet. Then Katie turned him to face the Christmas tree. Here, why don't you hang it up on the tree? Sid smiled up at her. His wide grin exposed a large hole where his front teeth were supposed to be. He stepped forward and scrutinized the already overloaded tree. After several seconds of searching, he found the perfect spot. He hung the black dove up in the middle of the multicolored lights and baubles and handmade ornaments. He turned to her. How's that? Oh, it's perfect. Katie smiled. She pulled him into a hug and kissed his head. His hair was soft against her lips and smelt like strawberry shampoo. Okay, Sid, time for bed. Santa will be here soon. Can I have another cookie? She sighed, smiling. Oh, <laughs> okay, but just one. He beamed and ran off into the kitchen. It was almost 11 and the house was quiet. Katie sipped at her glass, the thick red liquid warming her from the inside out. The garage door opened and closed with a thud. Heavy footsteps echoed in the front room. Katie looked up and smiled at Corey as he stepped inside. Everything all set? Yep, the bike's assembled and ready. And it really does look great. He's gonna love it. Her smile faded as she glanced over at the tree. She bit her inner lip and traced the edge of her wine glass with her forefinger, avoiding Corey's gaze. He sat down on the couch beside her. Hey, look, I know you really wanted to get him a dog this year, but I, I just... <sighs> he's, he's too young to have a pet. And he needs a new bike... Maybe next year, okay? Katie gave him a small smile. Yeah, you're probably right. Corey bent forward and kissed her. She let his lips linger for a moment before pulling back. Oh yeah, I picked up your suit today. She gestured to the clear plastic bag draped over the armchair. He stood. Thanks, babe. He picked up the bag and laughed, holding it to his frame. What do you think? 
<laughs> I think it's perfect. He's gonna freak. Corey smiled mischievously as he raised an eyebrow. You got another kiss for Santa Claus? Katie laughed good-heartedly. <laughs> Her teeth glinted white in the low light of the living room. A fire roared in the fireplace beside her. The heat warm on her legs as the cold air pressed down into her arms. She glanced at the burnt dove on the tree and her mind reeled. She thought about Rocky, his comforting weight on the foot of her small bed, the smell of his fur, the love in his eyes. She thought of Sid and the life she wanted to give him, a childhood without the mistakes of her own. She thought about the bike in the garage and the expectant expression she knew would be on Sid's face tomorrow morning. The black dove twisted slightly on its white string, its burnt flesh glowing from the fire. The memories of all those years ago flooded back. The grief, the shock, the disappointment, the anger. So familiar. Her father's face flashed in her mind the fake white beard melting onto his reddening face, the smell of hot plastic and singed flesh, the heat of her house burning on Christmas morning, the heat that now filled her chest, kissing the back of her tongue with a long-forgotten revenge. The scissors she used to cut the wrapping paper sat on the end table, promising her another way, a way to save Christmas, Katie stood and smiled sweetly at Corey, opening her arms for an embrace. For Santa? Anything. Another delightfully festive tale, wouldn't you say, everyone? Yes! And you, Nadine? Yes. Festive. Wow, that's the most agreeable you've been to our employees since... Well, that's the most agreeable you've been to our employees. Now, make like a tree and piss off into the corner with the others. Grant's up next. Come on, buddy. Let's see what Malcolm's got for you. Excuse me, CEO Logan Rogan, but please don't steal my thunder. However, you are correct. Grant Ketchum, the stage is yours. I'm not sure I... A pair of gloves? A pair of blue child's gloves? They remind me... They remind me that December 25th 2017 was the worst day. December 25th, 2017 was the worst day the town of Brigantine had seen since its founding. People call it the Christmas of the Lost. My heart still stammers just thinking about it. Hundreds of parents laid out gifts under their Christmas trees the night before. Each parent woke up to an identical scene as when they went to sleep. Cookies and milk were untouched, stockings bulged with undisturbed treats, and gifts rested in their places under the Christmas trees, cold from a lack of a children's joy. My wife Nina and I were no exception. I remember us tiptoeing past our son's bedroom as we carried his gifts from Santa down the hall. 
Nina was tipsy on eggnog, and, and I had a bit of a holiday buzz going myself. We giggled and shushed each other as we stumbled through the house. That's one of my best memories, because I think it's the last time we ever laughed together. Hell, I can't even remember if we've laughed since then. Ronnie was sleeping in his bed, like he always was. And I know this because my wife and I bickered about her going in there to give him a goodnight kiss. Looking back now, I thank God she won that battle. It brings me something close to a hint of solace to remember that some of his last moments in this house were spent experiencing his mother's love. We set up his tricycle, placing the largest yellow bow atop the handlebars that we could find. Nina's mother's tradition dictated that we place an orange at the bottom of his stocking, but the rest was filled with little toys and candies. And then I groaned as she handed me a full plate of cookies. Ugh, why do we always make so many again? <laughs> because it's fun. I don't know about you, but when Ronnie and I are making them, a small part of me believes they'll be eaten by Father Christmas. <laughs> she blushed as she placed an amber strand of hair behind her dainty ear. It was the thick peanut butter cups atop the cookies that were killing me that year. I remember practically choking on my own saliva. It just turned into a, a viscous syrup by the sugar. But we got it done, though, leaving exactly one cookie uneaten for Ronnie to sneak in the morning. The milk, however, that was all mine. We awoke to the sounds of sirens and the sun shining through our windows. Nina's bedside clock read 9.18 a.m. Now, as much as I tried to fight it, a cold chill enveloped each cell of my body. We knew something was wrong. It wasn't normal for Ronnie to sleep past 7 o'clock, but especially not on Christmas. Nina took off running to his room on instinct, fearing that he'd, he'd left the house and gotten hit by a car or injured somehow. I held my breath, praying praying to hear his sleepy little voice. But so far, my wife's calls had gone unanswered. Chris! Ronnie's not here! What do you mean he's not here? You haven't even checked the living room. Chris, I'm telling you, our baby's not fucking here! <laughs> Her footsteps boomed throughout the house, and then I heard the front door slam as she went outside. My breath started coming in faster and larger puffs as I tried to process the quickly unfolding situation. The robe I wore the night before felt disgusting against my skin. Nothing was right. It's like, in that moment, I already knew that any joy in my life was gone. I just couldn't accept it. Thousands of scenarios invaded my mind, crawling forth from the corners. I'd done so well to keep them hidden in. Each and every fear I had as a parent that was always out of reach for someone like me. It was now all too tangible. When I opened my front door, I was met with an overwhelming number of sobs and wails. Dozens of people on our street were outside of their homes. Most of them were crying hysterically. Some wore blank expressions of shock. Others demanded to search every person's home on the block who didn't have children. I held my wife as she tumbled to the ground. An officer told her that every child in the county had gone missing on Christmas Eve night. My brain fought with itself as to how I should feel. On one hand, 
Hundreds of children kidnapped at the same time would be hard to house and even harder to hide. On the other hand, though, the irrational part of my mind told me that something unnatural had happened altogether, and none of us would ever see our children again. As the months went on and the seasons changed, most of the parents had reached the same heart-rending conclusion. Until one morning. Nina and I are still married, though at the point this next part occurred, we were sleeping in separate bedrooms. She got on this kick right away about trying for another baby, which I was, I am, totally against. First off, I felt that if we had another child, we would be replacing Ronnie. Even worse, we'd be accepting the fact that he was never coming back. But we didn't know that. I'd always held out this heartbreaking hope that they'd find him, find all of the missing kids. Furthermore, if something in that town was taking children, well, I certainly didn't want to give him a new target. Nina's screams woke me from a heavily medicated sleep. The covers were thrown in the corner of the room as I sprang out of bed. Each step closer to my son filled my heart with a happiness I had feared myself no longer capable of. The long-lost and dearly missed sound of his voice stopped me cold. Whoever was talking to Nina, well, that didn't sound like our little boy. At least, not exactly. It was him, but it also wasn't. It was like his voice had been mixed with another in some kind of vocal synthesizer. My stomach heaved when I finally forced myself to finish taking the steps to his bedroom. A mutilated, mangled body laid in the bed that was once meant for our son. Don't get me wrong, he was alive and he was healthy. He just came back wrong. His face was a mangle of features that seemed random at best. It was as if Picasso had genetically designed a human being and then brought them to life. Licorice whip braids of pink scarring surrounded his every joint, his every knuckle, every limb. One leg was shorter than the other by six inches. His left arm was thinner and four shades lighter than his other left arm. The right eye, placed haphazardly on his face, was one of the only qualities that proved to me that it really was him. The eye on the left looked like it belonged to someone else entirely. Once again, the street was thick with police officers, and the fire rescue was there this time, too. Parents were holding disfigured children as they were being laid onto stretchers, each one yelling about how they were fine and they didn't need treatment. I met the eyes of the little girl who lived across the street from us and I recognized one of them as my son's. Whatever happened, it was as if each child was put into a machine, had their DNA all mixed and randomized and then spit back out. The children walk, they talk, they eat, and they play just like they always have. It's just impossible to tell whose is whose anymore. Over time, I began to hear whispers of a, of a reckoning of sorts. The town leaders and religious figures had labeled these children, some of them their very own, as abominations. 
Plans began for a massive event to return the children to the melting pot from which they came. Well, this disgusted Nina and I, sickened us to our very core. Yes, something had happened to the town's children. Yes, their bodies had been changed outside the norm. But all of them, clearly, were still them. They weren't monsters. They were, they were children who still laughed and loved and played. And their only crime was having been forced to look different to everyone else. Whatever the cause of the events that Christmas Day, whatever the reason, the priests and politicians were proposing a culling of the disabled. When you broke it down, that's what it was. And there was no fucking way we're going to let that happen to our son. So Nina and I decided to get Ronnie the hell out of there. By the time they noticed a child was missing, we would be long gone. If there had been any way, and believe me, we considered it long and hard, if there had been any way of taking all of the children with us, we would have. But the best we could do was find somewhere in the world that would greet our son with acceptance and love. We were just happy to have him back. The parents and townsfolk who felt differently, they were the monsters of Brigantine. So we fled under full cover of darkness, our hearts breaking for those we left behind. We moved across the country, found a small town where, for the most part, the folk treated Ronnie like the human being he was. And for a while, life was good again. But then, this Christmas morning, as Ronnie opened his gifts from under the tree in our new home, the doorbell rang. An abandoned present sat alone on our doormat. It was a rectangular box wrapped in gold and red paper with a large green bow and tag perched atop it exquisitely, carefully prepared. Ronnie hadn't come to the door, and I had no intention of bringing the gift inside without checking it. So first, I read the note on the tag. To Ronnie, we're watching. Merry Christmas. Inside lay a set of light blue children's gloves, made up of two left hands. Tragic. So tragic. And well told, Granty boy. But you know what you missed about that there pair of gloves? They're... They're, they're both left-handed? It's a pair of gloves made for two left hands. Of course. Which we know now, but you didn't notice before, did you, Grantosaurus? Much like how you didn't notice our beloved CEO slowly but surely siphoning company funds into a bank account for your new startup. Now, go sit in the corner and think about what you've done. Okay, Malcolm. Careful what you say here. Oh, you mean the part about how, yes, our company's dying, but how you and the other four have been embezzling money so you can walk away, lie low for a bit, and return to the tech world anew, somehow with the financial backing to start from scratch? I mean, that sounds like a pretty imaginative theory. Malcolm, what are you doing? You were part of this? What? We brought you into our circle. Why are you revealing this? Revealing this? Interesting. 
Now here, see, I have a beautiful golden box for you, complete with lovingly tied bow. But I'm not going to let you open it, Logan. No, not yet. I won't be denied anything. I want it. Give it to me. Uh, no, no, don't touch it. Leave, leave it. It's in my hands, but I won't open it. Not yet. I can't. Nothing to say. Can you believe that? The CEO who's literally famous for never shutting up in interviews, who's given more speeches than Hitler, is lost for words. Ah, oh, well, I guess I'll have to be the showman here and handle this one. But Logan, come on, you're so fond of startups. I think you can start us up. And now, on this crisp and crunchy Christmas Eve, Sally turned the radio dial up and smiled happily. The new song by Brenda Lee was one of her favorites. It was just past six, and Ben would be home soon. She hummed along while pinning pineapple rings with dried cloves to a hunk of pressed ham. Into the oven soon, and then she turned the jello out of the mold onto a bed of cottage cheese and crimson radishes carved into rosettes. It was Ben's favorite treat, lime jello with fruit cocktail inside. The mold was a special aluminum one shaped like a Christmas tree that Sally had bought just before quitting her job at the Five and Dime. She bought a jar of maraschino cherries and planned to put one on top of each quivery jello tree branch to look like ornaments. Red, green, and white. Cheerful Christmas colors. She smiled as she fussed with the jello. That, with the ham and the mashed potatoes, with tomato gravy and the Parker House rolls would make quite a perfect Christmas Eve dinner for the two of them. Simple, but hearty. They didn't have much, Sally and Ben. 19 and 21 years old, respectively. Married for just one year and one month. Ben worked the forklift at the paint plant in the big city. And Sally had worked at the only five and dime in Maryvale until six weeks before. The store manager wouldn't let her stay on when they found out she was expecting Ben Jr., or maybe a little Sally yet. She wasn't picky, but she knew that Ben had his heart set on a boy. They had to live now on just Ben's wages, but so far, so good. Ben was doing well at the plant and had his eye on advancing to forklift supervisor soon. Sally saved as much as she could, and the rent on their apartment was cheap. Someday they would have a little house of their own, filled with children. Sally, who was raised by her grandparents after her mother died and her father ran off, drinking to forget his grief, wanted at least four. After dinner, they'd have their special treat, ginger sponge cake washed down with Borden's eggnog, and then they'd walk around the neighborhood arm in arm, looking at all the Christmas lights. Sally loved the Christmas lights in Merivale. 
Sally didn't get to hear the beginning of the special police bulletin. The door buzzer sounded, and she turned reluctantly away from the kitchen and puttered to the front door, looking through the peephole. It was Lewis, the grown son of Mrs. Popkin from 2G down the hall, who still lived with his mother despite, at 22, being a whole year older than Ben. Sally was sure he'd never even had a girlfriend before. He could barely look her in the eye whenever they met. According to Mrs. Popkin, he spent most of his free time in his room, putting together Baker-like models of dinosaurs and movie monsters. Their apartment always smelled of model glue and enamel paint whenever Sally would go over to watch her favorite daytime shows, Queen for a Day or The Secret Storm. She and Ben did not have a television. They made do with the radio and Sally's neat little aqua-colored suitcase record player, which Grandma Amy had bought her in high school. Ben said they'd get a TV sometime soon, but in the meantime, Mrs. Popkin was plenty generous with hers. Anyways, Ben didn't like Sally watching the serial television dramas that people were just starting to call by the derisive term soap operas, so Sally was deliberately vague when he asked her about her visits with Mrs. Popkin. Women like that. Ben would shake his head whenever he heard a woman talking about soap operas, frowning and disapproving. The trashy ideas they get from those shows. Sally opened her front door. Lewis had started working as a delivery boy for McKenna's Scotch Country Market six months before. He was dressed neatly in his delivery uniform. White cotton twill overalls under a zip-up dark blue nylon jacket, finished at the top with a jaunty navy blue bow tie. On his awkwardly red-haired head, there perched a dark blue billed cap with McKenna's spelled out across the front in white embroidery. Sally had heard that he'd been let go from his old job in the big city because of some vague trouble or other. Mrs. Popkin said his boss was cruel and unfair because Lewis was shy and delicate. Good evening, Lewis. Merry Christmas. Lewis gulped jerkily. Uh, um, uh, um, uh... Merry Christmas to you too, Sal. Uh, Ms. Kelly. Uh, I've got your Borden's eggnog and the fruitcake for your Grammy Ammy and uh, a a little something for extra too. McKenna's is giving a special gift out to all its steady customers for the holiday season. He handed her a small grocery sack and a gaily wrapped package about the size of a shoebox with a big satiny red bow on top. Well, what is it? Lewis got an odd, furtive smile on his face, or at least that was how Sally saw it, and then sputtered. It's a secret. You're not supposed to open it until tomorrow. Oh, I won't, I promise. Well, I've got to get back to the kitchen and get my ham out of the oven and finish the mashed potatoes. And this eggnog needs to go in the icebox. Nice talking to you, Lewis. Mashed potatoes? With tomato gravy? They're... they're my favorites. He stood expectantly in the doorway, as if he thought she would invite him to stay for dinner at any minute. Lewis, your mother needs you home tonight of all nights. You need to get home as soon as you finish your deliveries or it will ruin her Christmas Eve. Lewis shrugged, ungainly as always, with his slightly crooked shoulders. It always seemed to Sally as if something would come flying off whenever Lewis moved too quickly. 
see see you around, Miss Kelly. Uh, Okie dokie, I'm I'm going home. See you around. Merry Christmas. She closed the door after him quickly, glad he was gone. He always made her feel ever so slightly uncomfortable. She mentioned as much to Ben once. He gives me the heebie-jeebies. He's put together like a tinker toy. His clothes never fit right, even when Mrs. Popkin had them altered at Swanson's department store. Ben had shaken his head disapprovingly. He's harmless. An overgrown boy, because she treats him like a baby and bosses him around so much. Women like that? Sally shoved the gift-wrapped package from McKenna's under the little tabletop tree on the coffee table in the living room, barely glancing at it. It was 6.30 now. She had hardly enough time to finish dinner and make herself presentable before Ben was expected at 7. He was working late for the double overtime. He deserved to see her look nice. It wouldn't do for her to greet him at the door dressed the way she currently looked, in a pair of red pedal pushers, which she'd let out at the waist to accommodate her slightly expanding middle, and a baggy sweatshirt with her high school letters printed on the front. She would change after getting dinner settled, just before Ben got home. She planned to wear her red and green plaid dress with the full, new-look skirt and the black velvet collar and cuffs, her good black pumps, and her tiny seed pearl necklace that Ben had given her on their wedding day. And, of course, she'd have to pull out her hair curlers and comb her curls out and put a slick of tangy on her lips. She didn't need much makeup, and Ben didn't like it anyway. But he didn't mind a thin coat of tangy and just a little light dust of rouge. Surprisingly, Howlin' Howie was still reading his police bulletin over the radio as Sally trotted quickly back into the kitchen. She didn't pay much attention to the radio as she checked on the ham, but then she stiffened up sharply when she heard the words, Gift Giver. Quickly, she turned the dial up again. The package was found at 5.45 p.m. on top of a freestanding mailbox on Carpenter Boulevard. Passers-by describe a tall, thin boy or man who looked to be wearing some sort of light-colored work uniform or overalls with a dark jacket over it and a dark cap with embroidered script on the front. Detectives aren't willing to say at this juncture whether or not it was left by the gift giver, but it follows an established pattern. Maryvale residents are cautioned to stay calm, but keep an eye out for any suspicious unattended packages in public places, especially if they're wrapped in the distinctive green, red, and white striped wrapping paper with gold glitter sprinkled on it, which the gift giver always prefers to use. The gift giver? Sally shuddered. The gift-giver was in Merivale. She could hardly believe it. Two years ago, at Christmas time, the packages had started to appear in public places in the big city, perched on park benches or freestanding mailboxes or fence pillars, always wrapped in the same paper and always containing the freshly detached body part of a young woman, an arm, a foot, a head. The mutilated, headless torsos of two young women had eventually been discovered in a remote gorge off the highway, but police had not been able to catch the murderer, whom the newspapers had sensationally dubbed the Gift Giver. Now he was back, and he was in Merivale. It was almost too much to comprehend, Sally thought, shuddering. She hoped fervently that Ben would get home soon. I'm glad I stayed in today. That poor young woman... And that poor person, whoever found it and opened it, 
the bulletin ended with more police talk, and then Howell and Howie switched over to a Burma shave jingle. The jaunty jingle clashed horribly with the gruesome news. Sally ran to the sink and instinctively started to wash her hands. For what reason, she could not say, but somehow, washing her hands always made her feel safer and able to deal with trouble. Maybe it was because Grammy Amy had always told her that cleanliness is next to godliness, dear. She turned on the tap and then caught a glimpse of her right hand and started suddenly. Why, how strange. The skin on her hand was sprinkled with sticky glitter. Gold glitter. The other one, too. What on earth? There was nothing in the apartment that would brush off gold glitter except... Except the package that Lewis had given her. Intent as she was on getting dinner finished, she hardly glanced at it. She couldn't even say what the wrapping paper looked like without going back into the living room and peering under the tabletop tree. Don't open until tomorrow, Lewis had said with an odd smirk. And now the smirk and the words seemed sinister, malevolent, frightening. Sally steadied herself against the kitchen table, for she suddenly realized something important. Lewis! Lewis wore a dark jacket over light-colored overalls. Lewis wore a dark-billed cap with embroidery across the front. And Lewis had worked in the big city two years ago, just when the horrible deeds of the gift giver had first surfaced, and he'd been let go because of some kind of trouble. It can't be. Sally looked wildly across her neat, snug little kitchen. The room looked the same as always, everything in its place but for the various mixing bowls soaking in the sink, yet it was different now, somehow, some way. The Mamie pink curtains at the window and the matching Mamie pink gigam oilcloth covering the kitchen table, they looked disturbing now, the cheerful color mocking her sudden sense of fear. The three chalkware fruit plaques on the wall, apple, peach, and banana, each with grinning anthropomorphic faces, which Ben had won for her at the county fair last summer, seemed leering and grotesque. It can't be. She fought the odd, thudding terror that was rising in her throat. If it was true, then... Then the gift giver lived right in her building, right on her floor, just down the hall in Mrs. Popkin's apartment at 2G. She, Sally Kelly, humble housewife and expectant mother from apartment 2A, personally knew the gift giver. Oh, poor, poor Mrs. Popkin. If she only knew. But... But... Sally didn't know for sure. She had to know for sure. There was only one way of finding out, she realized. The package under the tree in the living room. If the wrapping paper on the package that Lewis had given her matched the description that the police bulletin had given out, then she would know. If not, all her worrying and upset would be for nothing, and she and Ben would have a chuckle about it over dinner. She forced herself into the living room and crept up to the coffee table where the tree sat, gaily trimmed and festive. She had taken a long-handled wooden spoon from the kitchen drawer, and she used it to lift up the bottom branch of the tree to get a closer look. I'm not going to touch it, ever! There it was. The shoebox-sized package with the big red satiny bow. 
a bow which looked bloody and obscene now that she suspected what it was hiding. She pushed the red satin loops aside with a spoon handle and peered in closer at the package. Red, green, and white striped wrapping paper. <gasps> with glittery gold sparkles over the stripes. You could fit a woman's arm in it easily if you would cut the woman's arm off below the elbow. She felt horribly sick. I'm either going to throw up or I'm going to faint. She did neither. Instead, she sat heavily on the couch. I should call the police and let them know my suspicions. Yes, call the police and let them open the package. The radio bulletin had urged the public to report all suspicious packages. But then a nagging doubt began to claw in her mind. What if she was wrong about Lewis? Mrs. Popkin would never forgive her, and that would be the end of the long, pleasant afternoons drinking tea and watching The Secret Storm on the Popkin television. Not to mention the many times Lewis would fetch groceries for her from McKenna's without charging the delivery fee. And of course, she would look ridiculous in front of the police if she were wrong. Hysterical pregnant woman fantasizing about crazy things and wasting the police's time. It might even make the papers, and she'd never be able to hold her head up again while shopping at McKenna's or the Five and Dime. No, it wouldn't do. She'd have to make sure before calling the police. She had to open it. There were no two ways of getting around it. Sally clutched the wooden spoon and poked forcefully at the package, and she heard a definite, dull thud as if something long and tube-like were bumping against the sides of the package. Her heart sank into her throat. Definitely something long and tube-like. She had to open it. Stealing herself, she crouched down to the coffee table and leaned in for a sniff, then pulled back sharply. There was a faint but definite meaty aroma coming from the package. Meaty was the only way to describe it. I have to do it. I have to make myself open it. For Ben. For the baby. Maybe Lewis would go after her next. Or even the baby, after it was born. Anybody as disturbed as the gift giver wouldn't think twice about hurting a baby. She put the spoon down and forced herself to take the package, body shuddering and heart pounding all the way. She sat on the couch, the horrible thing resting heavily on her lap. What would it be like, she thought. Would it be bloody and gooey, or black and fetid, strips of skin and green nails peeling off the fingers, exposing white bone underneath? She shuddered again and turned away, nauseated. But the wave of nausea passed and she started to work on a corner of the wrapping paper. <coughs> the doorbell buzzer. It was the door buzzer. Sally's heart leapt and pounded in her breast as she sat still on the couch and pondered whether to answer it or not. Miss Kelly? Sally? My God, Lewis! It was Lewis. Sally put her hand to her mouth and bit the back of it to keep from screaming. I know you're in there, Miss Kelly. I've got something for you from my mother. Leave it on the doorstep there, Lewis. I can't. I told Mother I'd hand it to you personally. It's a Christmas gift. Right. Maybe it's a foot this time. 
He wasn't going away, Sally realized. Sinking to the floor, she crawled, trembling to the front door on her hands and knees, feeling safer and stronger somehow close to the floor, like Antaeus. With a huge effort, she drew herself up and looked through the peephole. Lewis was red-faced and sweating, his mouth set in an uncharacteristically angry gash. Mother told me. She told me. It's okay, Lewis. You needn't shout anymore. I can't open the door. I'm not decent. I just got out of the bathtub and I'm in my house coat. She was sure that Grammy Emmy would forgive her this lie. So, I can't open the door. What if he didn't want to leave, thought Sally frantically. What if he stayed at the door until Ben came home and attacked Ben? But surely Ben would have no problem taking care of himself. Sally screwed up all her courage, mustering a firmness and resolve she didn't really feel. Tell your mother I will come by after dinner and pick it up when I'm decent. I've got something for her also. Another lie which she was sure that Grammy Ammy wouldn't mind. All right. But if you don't come by, I'll come back. Mother told me. She watched him through the peephole as he clumped away. She was holding her breath, her pulse pounding. As usual, he moved awkwardly and reminded her of a tinker toy structure. A very dangerous and disturbed tinker toy structure. There it is. I've got to make myself open that thing. There isn't time. If it's true, I must call the police immediately. Maybe he means to do in Mrs. Popkin herself. His own mother. You never know. She crawled back on all fours to the couch and grabbed the package. This time, she tore through the glittery paper, determinedly and aggressively. She took a deep breath and opened the lid of the box, stifling again the urge to scream. The meaty smell got much stronger, until... My God, what on earth? Nestled in the box with a bed of crunchy white tissue paper was a long, dried salami sausage. Attached to the salami was a small printed card that read in gold script, Merry Christmas and Happy New Year to one of our best customers from McKenna's Scotch Country Market. There was no sound anywhere in the whole apartment for a long, still moment. Even the muffled buzz of sound from Howlin' Howie in the kitchen seemed to have gone silent. And then, Sally began to laugh. She laughed and laughed out loud, until tears streamed down her face in great big rivulets, laughing and crying at the same time. It's a salami! It has a definite meaty smell. Then she laughed and laughed again, more of a scream than a laugh, for at least five minutes, on and on. I'm going to wet my pants at this rate. Finally, she stopped laughing. Then she caught sight of the electric starburst clock on the wall behind the couch. Ten minutes past seven, the minute hand relentlessly approaching the Westinghouse brand name spelled out under the 30-minute mark. Jello, the tomato gravy. And look at me, I'm a mess. I'm still wearing my pedal pushers. 
Ben would be home soon, and he disliked seeing women in any kind of slacks or pants. Women like that, he would glower whenever he saw a woman in pants out in public. No, it's too late. She heard Ben's key in the door. He was whistling a cheerful tune the way he always did when he got home. I'll just have to be a woman like that for one night only. The important thing is, I'm alive. I'm alive. The gift giver doesn't live down the hall, and I'm not a cold, dead torso thrown in a ditch somewhere, with my arms and feet chopped off and wrapped up in red and green and white wrapping paper and gold glitter sprinkled on it. She shot up quickly and ran to meet Ben at the doorway. With still wet eyes, she threw her arms around her tall, solid, protective husband. Oh, Ben, I'm alive. (laughs) I'm not chopped up, I'm alive. You're wearing pants. Ben pushed her gently but firmly away. Your hair is in curlers. Women like that. Sally backed away slowly. There's something wrong. Where's Ben? That's not my Ben. My Ben has kind eyes and a sweet smile. My Ben would never push me away like that. She looked at him, her face flushed, her hands dangling awkwardly by her sides. Yes, it was Ben, different somehow, but standing there in his familiar light gray overalls with his dark olive drab Eisenhower jacket buttoned over it and his matching cap with Starling Brothers paint and trim embroidered on the front in yellow. Ben? Ben? Slowly, Ben stretched his hands out in front of his waist and stared down at them with an odd stare, as if he were seeing them for the first time. Sally looked down at his outstretched hands as well. Ben? She backed further away from the man in the doorway the man with the suddenly awed, staring eyes and the outstretched hands covered in gold glitter. I'm sure you've all guessed it by now, but Logan, perhaps you should take a look in the box. Who thinks he's going to produce a dried salami wrapped in green, red, and white striped wrapping paper with gold glitter sprinkled on it? So, I'm dying to find out. Was I right? No, it's... It's a button. A big red button. Oh my god, press it! Press it! Christmas confetti! No, not really. These are the pink slips our upper management were going to have me dish out to all of you as your secret Santa gifts. An event of efficiency and ruthlessness. To prove to the rest of the tech world that these five, well, six, if they were going to include me, 
had the drive and ambition to rebuild this company from scratch by letting their entire employee base go on Christmas Eve. A publicity stunt with your careers and lives as their centerpiece. Can I get a boo? But uh, I don't understand. What about the gifts? What about the stories? Oh, they're not relevant. That was just a bit of fun, really. I like theatrics. And the whole thing where, just by holding the object, you were able to tell the story associated with it? <laughs> well, I fancy myself as a bit of a magician. Only amateur, but, you know. And I particularly like dark magic, too. You see, all of you might be the head honchos, but I'm really good at commanding people, too. Like this. Disgraced CEO Logan Rogan. Go sit in the corner with your cronies. Yes, sir. So, I'm nearly ready to let all of you get back to the celebrations. But first, I have two bits of good news. One... I'm taking over this company. They won't remember it, but earlier I had the famous five sign everything over to me, including the details to the bank account containing the embezzled funds, the ones that will save this company. And now I'm CEO. The hiring and firing is up to me. And those pink slips that came raining down, <laughs> they're blank. Nobody's losing their jobs, not on Christmas Eve or any other day. Unless you do something bad, obviously, like steal or sexually harass an employee or throw a chair out a window. <laughs> you know what I mean. Oh, and here's the second bit of good news. Remember I said I like dark magic and I'm good at commanding people? Well, I'm good at commanding people in a lot of different ways. And I know a lot of different spells. And I may have lied a teensy-tiny bit when I said those gifts, those objects, aren't relevant. Because one of the things I can do is imbue an object so that when I say the magic word, it makes the person holding it explode. And that magic word is... Synergy. <laughs> now then, who's up for some office Christmas karaoke? <laughs> Let's get this party started! You have been listening to the No Sleep Podcast's Christmas 2019 Season Pass bonus episode. Here are the people who brought it to you. Bad Will Hunting was written by Manon Lysette and produced by Phil Mykolski. It was performed by Graham Rowett, Ellie Hirschman, Nicole Goodnight, and David Alt. A Very Ouija Christmas was written by Rona Vassilar and produced by Phil Mykolski. It was performed by Jessica McAvoy and Addison Peacock. The Black Dove was written by Jessica Charles and produced by Phil Mykolski. It was performed by Nicole Doolin, Ellie Hirschman, Nicole Goodnight, Aaron Lillis, and Dan Zapula. The Reappearance of the Brigantine Children was written by N.M. Brown and produced by Phil Mykolski. It was performed by Mike Delgadio and Sarah Thomas. 
Rockin' Around the Murder Tree was written by Jane Nightshade and produced by Jesse Cornett. It was performed by David Cummings, Addison Peacock, Atticus Jackson, Kyle Akers, and Jeff Clement. The episode script, Secret Santa, Secret History, was written by Olivia White and produced by Phil Mykolski. It was performed by Graham Rowett, Jessica McAvoy, Nicole Doolin, Mike Delgadio, Atticus Jackson, and me, David Cummings. Musical score composed by Brandon Boone. Thank you for being a supportive Season Pass member. On behalf of everyone at the No Sleep Podcast, we wish you and yours a festive season and a very happy new year. This audio production is copyright 2019 by Creative Reason Media Inc. All rights reserved. The copyrights for each story are held by the respective authors. No duplication or reproduction of this audio program is permitted without the written consent of Creative Reason Media Inc.